Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12 this uh, evening. And if you were to ask uh, someone for advice on a particular issue, you, you probably would go to someone who knew what they were talking about. Uh, you wouldn't merely just go to someone, uh, you know, you have a tax accounting question and you thought, well, I'm just going to ask this person on the street what they think. Or you get, get given a large amount of money from some form of inheritance or something. You, you would go and talk to a financial advisor. You'd go talk to someone. You, uh, you look at purchasing a house and you'd go talk to a builder, a contractor to be able to have a look. A, a car, you'd go have a look and, and pass it on to a mechanic. You're not going to go and uh, ask anyone to for anything. You'd, you'd go find the person to be able to help you give the, the right advice, the helpful advice. And uh, tonight we see that very same problem that's addressed. Now, Solomon has died. Uh, he's been buried with uh, his father in Jerusalem and and now the question that has been left hanging in the air is what's going to happen to the kingdom? The promise was that David's son would sit on the throne uh, forever uh, if they continue to walk in God's ways. And Solomon did not do that. The, the question then is where is this king? What's this going to happen? Uh, we have, we've been told of the prophecy of who is going to take the throne through uh, Jeroboam, the, the, the servant as we will see, but uh, now we're in the whole new uh, place that shows uh, this kingdom. Now Solomon has left. What is going to happen? Uh, what is going to happen to this kingdom? Now we uh, begin with First uh, uh, Kings chapter uh, 12, verse 1, where Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And we read this and we think, of course, yeah, they went to Shechem. We don't know where Shechem is in our minds off the top of our head. It's about 40 miles south or uh, north of, of where Jerusalem is, pretty central to the land of Judah. And, and, but, you know, w- what's the significance of here? We need to understand that as we come to the Bible, we read it from a perspective of, of how much we actually know about the Bibles. These stories uh, generally don't have any uh, significance to us to be able to understand what they are. But if I was to be able to say uh, a place of historical significance, maybe the Pennsylvania State House, um, hopefully some of you might be able to know something big happened there. Uh, you probably know the date better than the place of 4th of July in 1776 in Philadelphia, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, uh, Fort Sumter, uh, Pearl Harbor. Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, 1963. Uh, these places, uh, April 1865, Appomattox, uh, hopefully they're places that uh, you know about or you find out these historical significance, New York, September 11th. These uh, places hold historical significance on those dates, but also just even those da- the places, if uh, you're much of a historical uh, person, you would understand those places have significance. And so too, when we come to this passage, right at the very beginning, we hear that Rehoboam goes to Shechem. Though we, in our minds, probably will just glance over this. Um, 
Now, we've all had history at school. Uh, if I was to mention a historical place that I learned about in school in Botany Bay, uh, that probably has no significance to you at all. It's just a name of a place, and you're probably even saying, well, you just made that up. It's not actually a real place. Um, I'm going to say that about Appomattox. had to look at how to maybe pronounce it, even I'm probably brutally, uh, brutally uh, not pronouncing it correctly. But it would mean nothing to you because you didn't go to an Australian uh, school where you learned about Australian history. Nor did I go to an American school where I learned about American history. And most of us did not go to an Israeli school or a history school of uh, Old Testament studies to be able to have these key points in our life. Um, we don't know many of the historical significance or events, but what I actually see is if you read through the Bible, they appear quite frequently. Even in the New Testament, there's references to things like what happened to Balaam's error in the book of Jude. Now, that's a big historical story that comes up time and time again. Um, so we might understand big uh, mountains, literally big mountains of Mount Sinai, and we're taken to that place where that historical event happened where God descended and, and gave the, uh, the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments. Uh, Jerusalem, again, another uh, connection to us. But many of them go overhead, and that's exactly what happens here in this chapter. The previous chapter ended that Solomon slept with his father and was buried in the place, the city of, uh, in the city of David, his father, in Rehoboam, his son reigned in his place. The next chapter then begins by saying Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, we're told twice here, and again, these, it's a marker here that helps us to be able to understand he went to Shechem and they made him king in Shechem. So why is this important? Now, we have several connections to Shechem. Abraham goes to Shechem in Genesis 12, uh, where he goes to the Oak of Morah. Uh, Jacob in Genesis 33 and Genesis 35, when he goes to Shechem to be able to dwell there. Genesis 34 is where Dinah is uh, defiled by the men of Shechem. And then uh, Jacob's two sons uh, go and... uh, get revenge. Uh, Genesis 37 is uh, Joseph is sent to Shechem to go find his brothers. Joshua in, in Joshua chapter 24, the people of God gather here at Shechem to be able to renew their covenant with God, to be able to keep uh, their promises. But the most important story that should come to mind when we come to this, particularly because what is happening in and 1 Kings chapter 12 is the story found in Judges chapter 9, Abimelech. Now, before you get to think about uh, Abimelech, we need to uh, know what is before. In Judges chapter 8, we hear the story of Gideon. Gideon, one of the great judges, uh, rules and judges, and the people loved him. In, in Judges chapter 8, we find out the men of Israel come to Gideon and say, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, for my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So here Gideon has said, come be our king. You be our king. Your son be our king. Let's set up a monarch and you can be that royal line. Now Gideon says, no, I'm not going to be your king. My son's not going to be your king. So Gideon has 70 sons. 
and they want him to be king. And Gideon dies, and the people at the end of chapter 8 turn to be able to worship false idols, turning away from what Gideon had said, no, the Lord will be your king. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, and they go and turn to worshiping these false gods. Then comes to Judges chapter 9. And Judges chapter 9 tells us a story about Abimelech, the son of Gideon, and his quest for power, to be able to seize power and control all things. After Gideon's death, Abimelech goes to Shechem, where his mother's relatives live. And he convinces them to support him to be king. To secure his position, Abimelech goes and brutally murders all of his brothers, 70, leaving only one, Jotham, who escapes. Jotham then goes and stands on a mountain, and he tells this fable of the story of Shechem, uh, to the leaders of Shechem, Shechem, condemning their decisions to be able to make Abimelech king. He predicts disaster and judgment. It's a great story, a great fable of who will rule over us and go to the vine, and the vine says, I will not rule over you. But finally, Abimelech is made king by the leaders of Shechem, and Abimelech reigns for three years. However, a conflict arises between him and the people of Shechem. Gaal, the leader of the Shechemites, challenges Abimelech's rule, and this leads to a confrontation. And Abimelech defeats Gaal, but the situation intensifies when the people of Shechem rebel against Abimelech's rule. So to quell the rebellion, Abimelech attacks Shechem and destroys the city. As he attempts to capture the, the people in the hi, hiding in the tower, a woman drops a millstone on the head. Severity uh, severely wounded him. Rather than face humiliation, Abimelech commands his armor bearer to kill him, ensuring that he dies at the hand of the woman. Now, this story came up when Joab was there, and uh, Joab was commanded by David to send Uriah to the front. And Joab mentions that people might die from things falling down. And we looked at that when we looked at that in Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Here, Joab was probably hinting not merely about a tactical advance, he was trying to get David to be able to see this story and hear this story about Abimelech and his quest for power to be able to destroy men and his brothers to be able to hold that power. So the author reminds us several times that Jeroboam is going to Shechem to be made king. And what is going to happen is there's going to be division that comes. Now, at the very least of this, even if the author is not making this historical connection to uh, Rehoboam, I think he is, but even if he wasn't, it's not a good thing. You think even just broadly about what happens here at Shechem. It's brothers turning against brothers. Of uh, Joseph in, in uh, Genesis chapter 37, brothers attacking other people who live in the the people uh, of the, the land of Genesis chapter 34. So here, Jeroboam goes to Shechem to be made king. 
All these things coming up in our minds as we're thinking about this historical significance. So what happens here? So Rehoboam's there to be made king in Shechem. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see, And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, now, we've met Jeroboam a few weeks ago when we sought to be able to understand this all in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. Now we know what is going to happen. We've been told through the prophetic word uh, what is going to happen. In uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Now, the very first time we met Jeroboam, he's introduced to as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zirda, a servant of Solomon, whose name was Zeruah, a widow who also lifted up his hand against the king. So here we're introduced to him. There's adversaries before this, but here Jeroboam is a servant. And particularly, Solomon then sought to be able to kill Jeroboam because somehow... Solomon probably understood and connect these dots before it was going to happen. The the kingdom's going to be torn out of your your son's hand and given to your servant. Jeroboam's moving up in the ranks. The people start to be able to love him. Whatever reason, we're not told specifically. But here Jeroboam flees and goes to Egypt, taking refuge under Shishak, the king of Egypt. So now... This is all the backstory that we find out that here we're reminded of even in these chapters. We just read chapter 11, but the, the author is reminding us where Jeroboam came from. He went to Egypt to be able to flee from King Solomon. So here Jeroboam takes that leadership role once more and all the people of Israel are following Jeroboam. Now we know that the kingdom of 12 tribes is going to be divided. Ten go to the servant, two go to the son of Solomon. But here what's interesting is how this happens in this story. We've seen God prophesy of what is going to come about, but how does it actually come about? So we see Jeroboam and the people of Israel come and stand before Rehoboam. And they say in verses 4 and 5, that your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service from your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days and come again to me. So the people went away. They came and they put their conditions and they said, look, we will allow you to be king if you lighten the load from us. Now we get to understand, we've pointed to this verse several times as we look through Solomon's reign. We're not told specifically up to this point what Solomon did, but he used the people of uh, Israel to be able to build a lot of his building projects. Pointed that out several times. But here, they're able to say that King Solomon placed a, a heavy yoke upon us, this heavy burden. Now Rehoboam sends the people away and said, give me three days to be able to think. And he goes to find advice. How should I handle this matter? Now you think, well, this is a wise thing to do, right? Go and find advice from people to be able to help you. 
Solomon understood at a very young age as he became king, he said, I'm not wise enough to be able to rule your kingdom. Let me go and ask the Lord for wisdom to be able to give it to me. So he turns to the old men first. We see this in verses 6 and 7. Then Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. So here he goes to the group, the the group of the advisors who had served Solomon. At some extent, Solomon in his wisdom had appointed uh, men to be able to help him and it had served him quite well. He had accomplished quite a lot. He had peace on every side. Now, this obviously came through the hand of the Lord, but it would have come through ordinary means, even through the advice of these men uh, throughout his reign. And their answer is quite simple. You become their servant. Now, what did the Lord say through the prophet in chapter 11? That he was going to give the kingdom to his servant. Now, if you become a servant, then the kingdom would be yours. You be a servant to his people. Serve them. Now, this is a biblical definition of a godly king. Someone who seeks to be able to serve uh, the Lord. Christ comes. He's the perfect biblical king. You see this quite clearly in a famous verse in Matthew cha- Mark chapter 10. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the definition of what a a good king should be like. He is there to be able to serve the people on behalf of God. David and Solomon quite frequently would actually refer themselves to God as being God's servant. They they didn't uh, seek themselves in, in pride and puff themselves up, but they were placed in that position serving God as they served the people. But Rehoboam doesn't follow that advice. Actually, we're told quite bluntly in verse 8 that he just didn't do it. He he said in verse 8, But he abandoned the counsel of the old men that the the old man gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. So even before we find out the advice of what comes in the second group, we're told that he abandoned the first group the older man who stood before Solomon, and he goes to the younger man who grew up with him, who stood before him. Now you think about this relationship. This relationship at some point, Solomon had appointed these men uh, because they were wise. They had risen up through the ranks. They had served in whatever various capacities. Jeroboam would have been one of these men probably serving in these capacities before. And yet now Rehoboam goes and turns and turns to these young men who'd grown up with him. Now Rehoboam, one of the older kings of Solomon, the older son, is going to be favored. Of course you're going to have friends that like you. You go to school and you have the best snacks, you have the best games, you have the best things. You're going to have heaps of friends and, and Rehoboam had all of those. Now before we even get to the advice, we're told that It doesn't seem good to him that he 
He went away from that advice. He went from the old wise advice to the young foolish one. So what do these young men advise him to be able to do? We see this in verses 9 to 11. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made your yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than your, my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So here's the advice that he comes to. The first said, be a servant to them and they will serve you. The second was quite the opposite. The simple request is, Lighten our load. But the advice from his young friends is don't lighten their load. Show your power. Now when we think about this, this is probably a very worldly wise way to approach things. You're a young king. You've just followed a great ruler who has done a lot, many people would probably think you're in this position just because you were born into the right house. Show your power. Make them afraid of you. Therefore, they will submit to you. You're not going to have a revolt a, re, a revolt if, if uh, they think that you're strong and powerful and mighty. No one's going to stand up to someone who shows their power. And they said, my little finger is thicker than Solomon's thighs. Saying the weakest of my thin fingers is more powerful than one of the strongest parts of the body. They turn around and say, well, you, my father put a heavy yoke on you, but I'm going to make it heavier. I'm going to add to it. My father disciplined you with whips. Another sign of the warnings of what um, here Solomon's reign was actually like. Here, here are the brothers, the people of Israel coming to their king. And this is how Solomon treated his people with whips. But the young advice to Rehoboam is, well, we're going to use scorpions now. This can have different interpretations. It can mean scorpions, as in wandering in the wilderness. There's references there. Or it can be a form of, you know, a whip with more types of tails with the stinging barbs on it. But here, their warning is, the simple request is lighten our load. They didn't even say take the load off it. The, the, the word was just to lighten it. We will serve you. Just don't make it as heavy. But here he does not merely just say, I'm going to leave it as it is. He seeks to be able to put a heavier burden. I'm going to act, uh, add to your load. Again, this is a power move. He's trying to seek to show his power over the people of Israel. Now most stories move forward. There's conflict that arises. This conflict is that 
the people said, lighten our load. The resolution to this would be the load is lightened. But this, this story moves forward in a direction, not because the conflict is resolved, but the conflict actually heightens. It builds. Now again, we know what's going to happen. We know Rehoboam will side with his friends. The folly uh, compared to the wisdom of the older men who served with his father. But again, it's interesting in how all this pans out. And you see it in verse 12 to 14, what follows. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Now he almost word for word directly quotes his, these young men in how he addresses the people. And one of the things that we'll see as it comes up time and time again in First and Second Kings, what happens to God's people? What happens to God's people when sinful men are leading them? What are the consequences? How does it affect them? What happens in this situation? Rehoboam follows the foolish advice of those young men. And we'll see kings time and time again act out of selfish foolish, filled with greed and pride, arrogance, jealousy. Whatever sin it is, the people will follow or these events will happen. Sin will rise up. But I think what's important as we see all of these things pan out, it's how God uses them. Why he uses them. How God works. In this story, you have conflict that rises and grows over time. But interestingly, the author, under the inspiration of this Holy Spirit, tells us something very important in verse 15. In verse 15, the author writes and tells us, so the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. We're told here the people come to the king, and the king doesn't listen to the people. But all of this was brought about, it was for the turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that the Lord would fulfill his word. We've already been told what is going to happen in chapter 11. We've already been told that the 12 tribes will be divided. Two will go to Solomon's son, and 10 will go to Jeroboam, the son of Debat. But how that happens, it happens through ordinary circumstances. The sin of Rehoboam and the advice of following that. That we see God fulfilling his word through this choice that Rehoboam chose by listening to the advice of the other. We saw this uh, many a times through First and Second uh, Samuel. That the prophecy right at the very beginning, we knew that David would be king. 
He's crowned in 1 Samuel chapter 17, 16. And yet all these things carry out and he's not really crowned as king of Israel until 2 Samuel. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 3, which speaks of God's eternal decree, it says that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever come to pass. Yet so, as there neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Here, God ordains whatever shall come to pass, but he does so without violating three main things. He doesn't, he's not the author of sin. He doesn't ordain. He doesn't say, I'm going to place sin in their heart, therefore causing them to sin. That comes because sin is in our heart. Sin comes from within us. The second thing is God does not offer violence. So he does not. It's sin that comes from the people. The first says that God's not the author of sin. The second is that he doesn't offer violence. The violence is within the hearts of the people. The third is that God does not lose remove liberty, but he establishes it. Here, he establishes the liberty for Rehoboam to be able to make his choice. Rehoboam, out of his own sinful greed and action, sought to be able to listen to the advice of the young foolish men. And here God has ordained this all to be able to come to pass, and he does so through these secondary causes. And the, the focus of this chapter, in this very beginning, is of divine uh, sovereignty. This is what uh, um, Dale Ralph Davis explains here. The focus is on divine sovereignty, not human stupidity. Don't read this story, says the writer. The bemoan how headstrong youth seem to be or how the older folks tend to be ignored. Let's say one morning you tell a friend what happened at home the night before. I went into the kitchen and saw a zebra washing dishes at the sink. As you speak the words, you will stress, I went to the kitchen and I saw a zebra washing dishes in the sink. Would that be really be proper? Doesn't zebra stand out, one might say, in black and white? Shouldn't the emphasis fall on the strange culinary assistant? So with biblical narrative. When a writer so much says, now here's what you need to understand about the story. Or here is the explanation behind this whole event. We should pay primary attention to his emphasis if we want to get it right. And here we're told in verse 15 why this all came about. It came about not through, you might say, the advice of the old people or the advice of the young people, but God's decree. God's will 
in the situation to be able to carry out what he had said would already happen. Providence. And when we see this, as we read through First and Second Kings, we need to understand that this happens over the kings of Israel. This happens over the kings of Israel and Judah. But all kingdoms. Proverbs 19 says that many of the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Here God has a plan and a purpose throughout all of this. Whereas in Proverbs 16, verse 33, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Here we think things come by chance, what you're going to roll, but every decision comes not through chance, but through the Father's hand. And when we think about this, as we look forward in the pages of Scripture, everything comes because God had foreordained it to happen. Think about this as a king. Matthew points it out very clearly in Christ's birth. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 to 18, And Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, came, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, and according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, who refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here the author in Matthew says that here an evil, wicked king does an evil, wicked thing. Again, you can make some connection, I'm sure, to the wise men and not following the wise advice to be able to fall down and worship them. But the key here is, is not the, so much in Herod's actions, it's how it's to fulfill God's promises and what he had spoken through Jeremiah. God's sovereignty over all the situation and time and circumstance. Not merely in Christ's birth, but also in Christ's death. Peter in Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So we even hear wicked kings, Pontius Pilate, Herod, seek to be able to put him to death. And yet what, the, what Peter points out in Acts chapter 2 is here it happens because God had ordained it to happen. We need to think about this when we're seeking and we're praying. Nothing comes by chance. Who sits in the Oval Office? Their decisions, their choices. Now, who's at fault? We can't point and say, well, God's the author of this sin. It's the man or woman who sits, who makes those decisions, those choices. But yet, 
Your nothing comes by chance, and all of it works for God's sovereign plan and purposes. And as we continue to look through First and Second Kings, we need to be reminded of all this. That we're going to see wicked men come on the throne. We're going to see wicked nations rise up to destroy God's people. And all of them are instruments in which God uses to be able to carry out His definite plan. To be able to bring us to that point where Christ comes. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.